Hi, I'm Melissa. And I'm Jesse. Welcome to the Reimagine Success Podcast. We're a husband and wife team who want to make a difference and change the way we all view success. We've had the privilege of interviewing so many amazing, talented, and successful guests. Each one of them experienced success in their own way. We want to change how society views success by inspiring you to live your best life and celebrate your successes no matter what that looks like, big and small. Success looks so different for everyone, and we want you to reimagine your success. Welcome to Season 2 of Reimagine Success. Welcome back to another edition of Reimagine Success. So excited to be here today. Unfortunately, today I am flying solo. So Melissa had to finish some stuff and she just wasn't able to be with us today, but I am so glad to be here. I hope everybody's been having an unbelievably successful week for us. It's just been crazy wide open here lately and just so much is going on that we can't wait to up you, update you about. So make sure that you jump over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash creative global and get all the updates about what's going on in our life. We do so much bonus content over there and we'd love for you to subscribe and see what's going on with all of that. And with that today, I, we are so excited to have an amazing guest on the show today. Tim Tortora has spent his impressive career in the entertainment industry, garnering extensive financial and producing experience. During his career, Tim has served as an executive in charge of production and finance, a unit production manager, production accountant, and built a distribution business for a globally recognized independent film franchise. He's so dedicated to his craft and career that he spent his summer vacation writing code for and developing software during his time at Z Disney, and the studio bought it from him on the spot. He's released two books, his latest, How to Make It in Hollywood. Tim has worked as a film and television executive at a series of studios, including Oprah Winfrey's Harpo Films, Mandalay, Milk and Honey, sorry, Milk and Honey Pictures, TriStar Pictures, NBC, ABC, CBS, and the Walt Disney Company. We can't list all the projects he's worked on because it would take way too long, but to name a few titles, Tuesday with Maury starring Jack Lemmon and Hank Azaria, Amy and Isabel with Elizabeth Shue, The Wedding with Halle Berry, Before Women Had Wings with Ellen Barkin, Jackass the Movie, Project Imagination, Fear the Walking Dead, This Is It, For Right or Wrong, The Perfect Game, aka The Third Miracle, Home Improvement, Ellen, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, The Doors, Total Recall, Bugsy, Basic Instinct, Fisher King, Lord of the Flies, and Boys in the Hood. Tim's experience as an executive merged with his drive for innovation to always improve the production accounting process. This motivated him and his team to launch the F3 system in fall 2017, which is revolutionizing the accounting process as the en entertainment industry has known it to date. Wow, Tim, your, your bio is so unbelievably impressive. Welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you on today. Well, thanks for having me. And you know, it's just, it may sound impressive, but it's, it's a job. I work, I've been really fortunate, work with some amazing people and I love it. I, I wouldn't continue doing it if I didn't. Well, that, that, that's what we're all about. Like this podcast is 100% about chasing after the things that you love and finding success in a way that completes your soul, not just gets you a paycheck. You know, right. it's, it's really important for us to make sure that we are doing the things that feed us and drive us because otherwise, I mean, what are we living this life for? Honestly? Yeah, it's true. And you know, I'm at a point in my career and have been for going on 20 plus years where I've been in a place where I love what I do, but I've done a lot of soulless, terrible jobs that haven't we all. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the game. It's part of being 20 something. It, I, I was lucky 
I got into an executive seat when I was 30. I was running, uh, Harp, I, was, I was the head of production film. I was head of physical production for Harpo Films, which mm -hmm. is Oprah Winfrey's uh, television long form, like two hour movies and feature film unit. I was 30. I was, I was middle of my, I, was, I, I guess I was halfway through my 30th year. I was lucky. I was very young. A lot of people don't get that till they're 35 or 40. Uh, and I've been super fortunate. Well, that's a great transition for us to just start diving into kind of what you've done, how you got into it. So why don't you tell us a bit about your story, you know, where you, where you came from, what you were doing before you got into all this good stuff and then right. like how you transitioned into that. Well, uh, how I transitioned into it was honestly just saying yes to everything. That was my modus of operandi all the time. I always knew I wanted to work in entertainment. I grew up in Southern California and my parents had tickets to the theater and tickets to the stage plays. And I remember driving past the studios and saying to my parents, what goes on behind those gates? What is it? And my dad said, that's where they make movies and TV. I was like, I want to do that. And I was 12 or 13 years old. And I went to movies with my parents a lot. We went probably two or three times a month to whatever was out. And I think I was 11 years old. I saw Apocalypse Now on a screen, oh, nice. on a giant screen. Who takes their 11 year old? <laughs> and my sister was four years, is four years younger than me, which meant she was like, do the math. She's seven, right? Yeah. So who takes a seven-year-old to Apocalypse Now? Yeah. Nonetheless, my parents brought us to movies, sometimes maybe some bad choices, but you know, I got hooked. <laughs> I was completely hooked. It was magical to me. And I'd stay up late for the Oscars. And I was in undergrad. I was a student. I was a music student at the time. And I, I, every music student had to take a recording engineering class. And that led me to being a, uh, a, a tape op in a recording studio, basically a PA, an intern, which mm -hmm. I finished my degree. I did all the way through college. And then uh, I finished my degree. I got an advertising degree and I went to go work for a studio, uh, Columbia Pictures at an ad agency. And that's where I worked on Bugsy, Total Recall, Terminator 2, big features. Yeah. And the only reason I wound up in movies and not music was because I had two typos in a cover letter and the executive at the head of marketing at A&M said, wrote back in pencil on my, on my cover letter said, Tim, although you sound like a bright guy, I could never consider right hiring someone who can't write a flawless cover letter. And oh, he wow. sent it back to me. Wow. And that... I, I fixed the typos. Actually it was one typo and one questionable. I, I used a colon after dear, um, what was his name? Dear Rob. <laughs> and he wanted to see a comma or a semicolon. Oh my so, goodness. I mean, the other one was genuinely a typo. So I fixed the typos and I sent it out to the studios and I wound up getting a job. That's and then crazy. <laughs> I wound up being a PA on a TV show with three days of guaranteed work. I stayed for a year and just worked my way up from there. Now, just for my personal curiosity, because I am a musician, what, what kind of music were you studying in college? I'm sorry, you cut off for a sec. What'd you say? Oh, I was saying that I am a musician myself. And so for my curiosity, what, what kind of music were you studying in college? Uh, mostly jazz. I was a percussionist. I was a drummer. Oh, nice. I was into loud, you know, whatever was loud, whatever was punk, whatever was metal, and it was fast. I was into it. I was, I thought I wanted to be a drummer. Uh, but as I started to see the players come across in, uh, when I was in college, they were better than me. They learned faster than me and they practiced six or eight hours a day. And I didn't want mm -hmm. to practice that much. I was, I was like, nah, not for me. And at the same time, I, I, I developed this skill working in a recording studio where I was on the other side of the glass in the control room. And I learned a lot from two amazing people, Dan Van Patten, actually three, um, a guy called Steve Anderson, and then another engineer called Bob Brown. And the, between the three of them, I learned so much about the recording process and it just fed that part of my 
technical curious brain that mm -hmm. I was just like, forget being a musician. I stopped, I went cold turkey. I stopped playing one day, put my sticks down, threw my drum kit in the garbage. And oh, that was wow. it. I wow. was like, I'm done. I'm never going to play again. I think I kept a snare and a pair of sticks just to do rudiments. But after, by the time I was 25, I don't think I ever picked up another. I was out one night with some friends and I played with the uh, some of the dudes from Circle Jerks with a friend of mine one night, just happened to be at their house. And, uh, and you know, that was it. I just was, I was like, okay, business, more of the, less of the creative and more of the business. And as I got further up in the business, I was like, eh, I really want to work, get back to creative. And that's what brought me back to working in film production. Yeah. Um, so I want to explore that a little bit because that's really interesting. Just your mm -hmm. mindset behind all of that. So it's, it's really interesting to me as somebody who loves music to think that, you know, there could be some kind of opportunity that would come along that would would make me put it aside altogether, which yeah. is what you were saying you did. And was that something that you missed ever or was it yeah. you were so passionate about, you know, the things you were doing that it wasn't really that big a deal? I, so, yes, I did miss it. But what I missed was the making of music, right? I mm -hmm. loved making music. I hated playing it. I hated being a player. <laughs> Put a chart in front of you, play the same fucking tune over and over and over and mm -hmm. over. I felt like that monkey with the symbols. Kink, 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 kink. Yeah. You know the one? That's well, what it feels our, like. Our joke was in college that any old monkey with no brain could play the drums, just put a sheet of monkey of uh, music in front of him and give him some sticks. And he's got, you know, <laughs> like it, it is very mindless when it comes to especially classical like style drumming and, and yep. like college level drumming. It, it's more fun if you're in a band and performing or, in, or like creating like music of your own and getting to yeah. have that initial writing but i could see we're doing it over and over and over again the same songs the same way that does get a little old at times but even playing in a band playing the same set yeah. you know tuesday night wednesday night thursday night it's like and enough. making it seem fresh yeah. every time and, and that's exciting. a skill that is a skill mm -hmm. if you're john bon jovi david lee roth whoever name the rock star right yeah whatever if you can play the same song every night in the same order you know whatever 200 nights a year that is a skill. And to get people to show up and do it, I, my hat's off to them. I, I get bored. I, I got really bored. So I just, yeah, I missed the process of creating music. And mm -hmm. as I got further up into the music and the or into the business and the technical side of the industry, I, I was getting further and further away from actual creating of, of something, whether it was mm -hmm. movies or TV or music or whatever. That's what got me. That's what, that's what forced me to get into, into production as a PA. That was a really hard decision. I was walking away from uh, what, so what precipitated that change was I was offered a job working. I was working on the Columbia TriStar business at an agency called McCann Erickson. It's a big conglomerate now. And mm. I was offered a job on the universal business, making three times what I was making before. Oh, and wow. I was making terrible money at the time. I mean, literally I was living with three dudes in a two bedroom on the West side. That's, <laughs> that's how inexpensive my life was. Mm -hmm. And I was about to, to get this next job and I was going to get the title. I was offered the title that, and I'd been only been doing it for three years, two and a half, three years, something like that. And I was about to be, I was offered the title of a media supervisor, a job most people in New York and LA spent 10 years toiling away in strategy before they got that title. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, if I take this job, I'm going to get further away. I'm going to hate my life in 20 years. And I just... I bailed. I took a $400 a week job on a TV show called Dream On, 
from, you know, that honestly, a, a dear friend of mine helped me set, uh, helped me get set up in that, in that show. And I took three days worth of guaranteed work and I stayed for a year. And, and that's the part I missed was being in the trenches of actually making something. And that I still do miss to some extent. Man, I, I'm just going to just talk over what you just said, because I, I love it so much. The fact that you gave up a really good paying job because it wasn't going to fulfill you. And you took something that was less money, less guarantee because it was what you wanted. And that's, that's exactly the thing that we talk about here all the time is success. Most people would be like, well, you're not paving the way for success because you're not taking the higher paying job, but you opened up a door for yourself that led to all these amazing things that you would have missed out on. Had you got into that corporate job and let your soul die along with it. And you would have just put your head down and, you know, ground out the work. And who knows if you would have ever got back into a more creative field. Yeah. And that, that decision process was, I was young, I was 25. It was emotional. It took six months or a year. I'm sure I was fucking intolerable to be around during that time with my friends. Right. And, and honestly, in retrospect, they have said so much. They have been completely <laughs> candid about that. So it wasn't like I just flipped a switch and went, oh, I'm going to go do that. It transpired over about nine months and mm-hmm. it took me, it maybe even a little bit longer. It took me a while to get to that place where I got to, I got to do what really um, feeds my soul and what's made, what I'm interested in, what I'm passionate about. And that's been since I made that choice when I was 25 and I successfully crossed the divide, I've done it over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that's a skill you, you develop and you learn and you learn by failing and you learn by making mistakes and you learn by trying, just not trying and just, you know, not being out there, meeting people. This is a social business. Entertainment mm-hmm. is extremely social. And if you don't know the guy or girl in the senior position who can put you in the chair of musician, author, uh, director, writer, producer, actor, whatever, if you don't know that person, you're never going to get hired. It's that simple. You right. have to network and you have to be social and stay connected. I don't really want to do that. I didn't want to do it in my 20s. I don't want to mm-hmm. do it in my 50s, but I still do it. And I had to do it then. I forced myself to be out meeting people when it was uncomfortable to walk up to someone and say, hi, I'm Tim Tratora. What's your name? And make, just strike up a conversation. That's really hard and it sucks, but it's part of the job. I completely understand that sentiment. My wife is great at this. If anybody who knows Melissa has ever seen her out and about in public, she will walk up to anybody and she's never met a stranger. She'll just start talking right away, strike up conversations, networks like a champ. Um, me, I like, we go to these uh, parties or events or, you know, whatever, where we're trying to network and stuff. And she's out there meeting new people. And I'm just kind of looking around like, all right, how am I going to (laughs) break into this conversation? What's something witty that I could possibly say that would get me in, you know, or it's just, it's nerve wracking for me because I'm a, I'm an introverted extrovert. So same with me, exact same thing. Once I open up, I'm, I'm good. I'll have a conversation with you all day long, but that initial, getting into your space, I, I close down and I have a really hard time doing that. So I, I understand that sentiment because I am with you on that. Well, um, I'll tell you something I learned from watching actors and something a journalist once said to me many years ago about that exact thing, about mm-hmm. networking and meeting people. Don't fish for the weedy thing. Just introduce yourself and ask them a question about themselves. People yeah. love to talk about themselves. And if they don't, they at least have something they can reference and you can start strike up a conversation. And then that yep. leads to the next thing. 
But, and that's part of, partly what I teach in my current book, which is informational interviews is the gateway to building a network in Hollywood. You got to mm -hmm. do them. And the way you do that is you try to get, you figure out who to get connected to by researching the shows you want to work on and who works on them and who actually is in the trenches making them. And mm -hmm. then you connect with them wherever you can on the phone, cold calling, DMing, cold DMing, whatever, LinkedIn, Facebook, try to stay away from the personal if you can. Mm -hmm. And then you want to try to get an informational interview, whether it's, whether it's on the phone or in person for 20 minutes. And at that interview, you're just going to ask them, how did you get to the job you're at? I'd love to do the job you're doing. What's your path? And then you shut up and you listen. Yeah, that's, that's such great advice. And uh, I hope our listeners are listening to that because it, it, so many people will go on LinkedIn, like you're saying, and then immediately start cold calling with some product they're trying to push or yeah, they're, they're trying to get you to you know buy into something and it, they don't spend any time developing a relationship at all and yeah. i love your approach of like really getting to know the person and hearing their story because people do love to share their stories they do um, that's the whole reason we have this podcast because we're trying to get people to share their stories and encourage other people and help other people to grow and learn and so when when you approach somebody with that mindset of yeah, I, I want to know about you because I, I look up to what you've done and yeah. I want to see myself get to that point versus, hey, how can you help me or how can you buy into my thing? You know, like it's such a different mindset going into it. Well, to that end, when you DM someone, I always say I, I have a, a three sentence structure that I say to people, which is, hi, I'm Tim. I'm a and be honest. If you're a student, say you're a student. You don't need mm -hmm. to talk about all the great stuff you made as a as a student, film student, or or working or be embarrassed about being a bartender or whatever. Tell them mm -hmm. I am a student. I'm currently my my goal job is to be a director, actor, writer, producer, crew, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Insert that. Um, I'm currently looking for a position as a PA or some kind of an assistant job because those are the jobs you're going to get entry level. Once mm -hmm. you get in, then you can network. But and you have to you have to focus it to the right person, right? I get mm -hmm. I'm out there on the net everywhere. I get DMs and emails all the time from people. Will you read my script? No, I'm not. <laughs> I don't have I don't have two fucking hours of my life. I got an 11 year old girl, little girl. I want right? to spend time with her. Not read your draft. Will you raise mm -hmm. money for me? No. I'm, if I'm going to raise money, I'm going to raise money for projects that my clients are paying me to raise money for. Right? Yeah. I'm getting paid to do something, and mm -hmm. I don't work on the if come. So. And neither should anybody in the industry, by the way. I don't, I don't think anybody should ever do that. But at least once you establish a career, but that's for another time. And uh, by that, you of, mean, if this makes money, then correct. you will get paid. Correct. Yeah. In the entertainment business, we get paid, mm -hmm. plain and simple. You may dip into free work. You may dip into student work because you want to build a network and you want to expand your knowledge in a particular area. But if you're going to go work in that area where you're not being paid, it's amateur league. Those mm -hmm. people don't have money. They don't have access. They don't have distribution. And it's going to do nothing for your career. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. You do it. You do it a couple of times. Do it for a couple of days when you have time off. It's not interrupting your primary source of making a living because you got to make a living unless you have a trust fund or your parents are paying for you. You got to make a living. So I always tell people, don't work on the if come. And if someone says to you, I need $500 to get you into the festival, get you into the circuit. I need 500 or a thousand bucks. And I see some for five grand where people will spend $5,000 for a distributor to take their movie out into the markets. Mm -hmm. In the business of entertainment, we collect money. We do not pay money. 
we collect from distributors and exhibitors. We never pay people for this job. So mm. if someone says to you, if you pay me 500 bucks, I'll get you a casting session. If you pay me 500, I'll get your movie into a, into a festival or I'll get it into a, a market so we can make a sale. That's bullshit. It's a scam. Don't pay it. Yeah, that's great. Is that what you mean when you talk about the Hollywood con man? I've, that's I've, the Hollywood I've con seen, man. Yeah. So what, how did you first start getting uh, introduced to the Hollywood con man? What was your first con and did you fall for it? Um, I actually worked in the industry for over 20 years before I ever got ripped off, believe oh, it wow. or not. I got really lucky and I got ripped off because a group of producers I was working for as a line producer uh, said they had $14 million to make a movie and they didn't. They only had oh, seven and they yikes. shut down physical production halfway through and we got stuck in Mexico. But that's, I wrote a book oh, about Oh my that. goodness. That's another story. Nonetheless, um, yes, it's the Hollywood con man. The, the, and I think the simple guiding principle that I go with every single time is if someone's real, they're going to pay you and mm -hmm. they're going to pay you real money. Now you may do an internship, you might do uh, free work as um, an apprentice on something, but don't do it for very long. Do mm -hmm. it, like I said, for a couple of days, a couple of projects to get credits on your resume and spread your name around. Don't go work for one person, one guy, one girl for a year or two years or five seasons on a show. If you, when you're young and early in your career, you have to expand your spider web. You have to expand your network like a spider web. Mm. And if you are working for one person and that person takes a vacation, stops working in the industry, retires, or they get kicked out because they made some lewd comment to some woman on a set, young girl who who's angry or yeah. some dude who's angry, your career is over because that person above you was an idiot. So you got to spread yourself around, or maybe they just are innocent and they're just not, don't want to do it anymore. They, they grew out of the industry. This is a business for young people. You get to be 40. And if you're still working in production, you're looking around going, God, I never see my family. When am I going to see my family? Maybe I don't have a family. Maybe I'm never going to do this. Right. So right. you kind of have to be cognizant of that. Spread your name around, work around a lot, but don't take a lot of free internships, one or two at the most. Mm -hmm. And when it's time to level up to the next job, maybe you take an internship or a free job because you want to meet someone who you want to work with, but only do it for a few days. Don't do it for a long time. That's great. That's great. Now you've worked, you've, you've got so many credits and you've worked in so many departments doing different things. What's been your favorite department to work in and, and really kind of spread your wings a little bit? Well, it's always been finance. That's the thing okay. that I really cut my teeth and, and made my reputation was in finance physical and physical logistics as a line producer. So I came up in finance. I started budgeting. I started scheduling. The next thing I knew I was uh, UPMing and then I was line producing and then I was a, um, a production executive managing multiple shows simultaneously with UPMs and producers and, and all the rest sitting under, well, it's under my boss, but I sat dotted line to my boss and and I, uh, I, I, con I consulted her on what was going on and what, we, what were bad decisions and what were good decisions, right? So for me, it's always been finance and physical logistics. That's what I do now. I'm, a, I'm an outsourced CFO. I make anywhere from 10 to 12 TV movies a year. Some mm -hmm. episodic, once in a while we consult on. And uh, once in a while, my clients will pick up some independent features that we work on. But it's really finance. And I, I don't have a background in it. And I took a couple of classes at one point in accounting and I just really liked it. And I've, I've, I, I got good at it. And I think that's something we need to tell people when you're young, mm -hmm. um, in your twenties, whatever you're good at, figure it out and lay into it. I always used to say, I'm the guy with the most obvious creative idea in the room. You don't want me to be a creative, or if you do, I'm going to make him I'm going to make him really subpar content, but <laughs> 
I'm really good at putting together people and money and figuring out how to move it around and do a budget. My budgets in some cases came in within $1,000 on a two or $3 million project wow. within $1,000 what my estimate was. Wow. That's Actually, that impressive. was a, that was a $9 million project. So Dang. either way, um, I was able to bring, I was always able to budget accurately and budget um, without, you know, overspending that kind of thing and deliver projects for what the producer had for it. So I figured that out when I was young, I was 26. I just love doing budgets for movies and I would do them a couple times for producers for free. I would yeah. do schedules for free. And then I would, not only would I do them, I would then compare my work against what actually happened to see how correct or incorrect I was all across that budget or all across the schedule. So mm. um, learn what you're good at early and what you're good at young and lay into it and just do it over and over and over and become a, an, ex, a, an, an exceptional expert at that thing. Yeah, that's such amazing advice. It, it frustrates me. I actually used to be a teacher uh, for about six years and um, that's cool. It, I was teaching middle school and it, it, it drives me nuts because nobody cares about what the kids are actually interested in, what yeah. they're good at. Like you're saying, like, they're just like, no, learn all this basic curriculum stuff and make sure that, that, you know, all your formulas and all mm. the stupid stuff that you're never going to use my, my, I have an 11 year old daughter as well. And she texted me the other day, she, we were talking about her math class. She had gotten a bad grade on a test. She's like, seriously, am I going to use this when I get fractions, older? right? Yeah. Yeah. Fucking fractions. fractions. It's so stupid. And I said, unless you're going to build something where you, even then to, you won't use yeah. centimeters and millimeters. It's more right. accurate. Yeah. And, and so like, I, I try to tell her, no, you just get by the best you can learn it as good as you can. But you mean, like, I'm not the only parent in America having that conversation <laughs> with their 11 year old. Well, the education system's so broken and I, I refuse to just allow my kids to go through it and, you know, be just treated stupid. Like they have treated everybody else in America for the last, yeah. however many years, this has been our endemic that's going through our country like well, this is ridiculous and they if you're a little bit it. bright you get left behind absolutely and because they're teaching to the stupid all the time yeah it's the lowest common denominator they have yep. to figure out what kids um they Are can just stupid. push through and yep. and then right above that level of pushing through there's the level they're going to teach at and then all the smart kids like you said they're just bored twiddling their thumbs most of them are accused yep. of being ADHD or yep. you know because they're that was they, me they're not being challenged that was me in the 4th grade i can remember the day i remember what i was wearing i remember the weather i remember mm -hmm. who i what class i was in i was like chumash indians again i got this we did it in third we did it in second i'm done if this is a tool i'm out and that yeah. was it i pulled the shade down and i didn't pay attention till i went to college so uh, did that impact your grades or were you smart oh, 100%. to get by? Okay. I used to drive my parents crazy. In the classes I was bored by, I would get Ds. And mm -hmm. by the way, I would get Fs at the quarter. And then oh. when the semester came, I would turn them into Ds. But <laughs> when my report card came, I would take the F and I would take it with a pencil because it was that carbon mm -hmm. um, print through. I would turn the F because I could hold it up to the light. I could see it. I would turn the F into a B and the grade would come in on the semester. My mom would be like, you, how you had a B, how'd you get a D? And I'm like, I went from a fucking F to a D. What are you talking about? That was in my head, right? Yep. So anyway, that's so, so yeah, great. it suffered. But then architecture and graphics and woodshop and business class, mm -hmm. A's, straight A's. My parents couldn't figure, they're like, why are you failing or getting D's here and A's there? I'm like, oh, I was bored. 
Yeah. And you would think that that would be a red flag for people in the education system, because it's not just you, it's across the board that's happening with so many people. Obviously, you have your overachievers that are just making straight A's on everything. But the normal person is going to apply themselves to what they're interested in. And I like this new kind of mindset that's coming out lately where it's it's more education based around the children's interests. Uh, One of my friends is experimenting with that. And like he takes his kids on nature walks and then they explore like different types of mushrooms and they learn about it. You know, just they find stuff in the woods and and you learn about it organically versus reading a textbook and getting that knowledge through there because it just doesn't work anymore especially not in this day and age where everybody's so technologically driven and just sitting down and reading a book is very rare for a lot of kids these days it's true and uh i like to say that the the education system at least in southern california los angeles mm-hmm. is teaching to the 1950s space program that mm-hmm. was a half century ago come on, oh guys. yeah absolutely gotta Move get on. it together yeah and let's not anyway. even start about history but let's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the classics uh, the well, trolley problem, right? Enough ranting about how messed up our school system is, because yeah. I could talk about that all day. Uh, speaking of books, you wrote two books. You've written uh, How to Make It in Hollywood, which is inspiring filmmakers through the black box that is building a durable network in film and TV production. Can you talk a little bit about the black box and how to build a durable yeah. network, of course, without giving too much of your book away? Well, um, so the black box is what everybody sees is actor and director and once in a while they'll know who the writers are right Mm -hmm. they have no idea that there's 250,000 other jobs that do all the back-end stuff the post-production the grip electric camera set deck all of that and producers Mm -hmm. right so what most people don't know is this is an industry and it's extremely uh difficult to get connected to Mm -hmm. um it's super closed uh and it's all a referral business so you have to know somebody and the only way you're going to know someone is by making a connection. You do that by doing informationals. You do it, you get the informational interviews by being relevant to the person you're talking to for the career choice that you want long-term. So you first got to decide what it is that you want to do. Then you got to decide what vertical you want to work in. If you want to work in dramatic television, single camera, one hour, you're not going to go to Endemol because they make reality television, America's Got Talent, Mm. that kind of stuff. I don't know if they produce that particular show, but that kind of show, right? Right. Um, So- Anyway, Endemol isn't the place where you're going to go to do drama. So you have to know who the players are. You have to understand the system. Everybody knows Sony Pictures, Warner Brothers, Paramount Pictures, Disney, all of that, right? Well, underneath those structures, there are production companies. And there are anywhere from two or three dozen of them to two or three of them from within the financing structure that is the studios and the distributors. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand who those people are because you're never going to sell to Disney. You're never going to sell to Paramount, but you can sell to the creative assistant or the development executive at the production companies that have, over, that have overhead deals with the studios. Mm-hmm. So understanding the structure, understanding who to talk to, are you going to get to Joss Whedon if that's what you want to do? No. <laughs> are you going to get to his assistant? Maybe. Are you going to get to the staff writer on one of his shows that you found through IMDb uh, researching what he works on, what you love, and then figuring out who that person is and what other shows they've worked on? Yes, that's the person you're going to go find out. If you want to be a writer, go talk to that person. Try to make a connection. Hi, my name's Tim. I'm an aspiring writer. I'm, or, excuse me, I'm currently a student. I'm an aspiring writer. I'm looking for work as a PA. I'd love to find out how you got to where you are as a staff writer on XYZ show that Mm -hmm. I admire greatly. It's that simple. 
it's four or five sentences. It's two paragraphs without asking for something. That's yeah. another key thing in your informational interview. Do not ask for job. Don't ask to read your script, watch your YouTube content or come to your showcase. Just don't do it. it you, you're, you're gonna, they'll ghost on you. You mm -hmm. have to just be open to the idea that I'm looking for this job. I'm out looking. If you know anybody, feel free to throw my resume around. And then you email them a resume. And on top of that, you mail them. You get their physical snail mail address and you mail them a handwritten note that says, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No one does it, especially yeah. anybody under the age of 35 or 40. They don't even know what a stamp is or where to go buy one. <laughs> Learn where the stamps get bought. And if you already know that, fantastic. Use it to your advantage because 95% of people don't write hand notes and they don't mail them to people. They fire off an email because it's fast and cheap and easy. Yeah. Transcend fast and cheap and easy and make yourself different from the rest of the chumps who are lining up or outside the door because there are thousands of them. And that's why this industry is so hard to get connected to and get into. That's such great advice because even so, uh, my wife is an actress as well. Um, mm -hmm. she, we live here in Atlanta. And so, you know, we're part of the Atlanta acting scene. Yeah. She was in LA for yeah. a long time and did acting out there, uh, you know, made a pretty decent name for herself over the years. Yeah. And that's a tough uh, grind, man. It, it, it's a really tough grind. And I want to add one thing to acting before you move on. I want to okay. hear this no. story about your wife, but understand something. If you're an actor trying to make this transition, an actor's job is to audition when just because mm -hmm. you haven't had paid work doesn't mean you don't have a job as an actor. It just means you haven't been paid for it yet. Your right. job is to audition and network and get to know people. So when you say to people, I'm an actor, I'm auditioning, stop it. <laughs> You're an actor. You're doing a job. Your job is to audition. Have confidence in what you're doing. Even if you're a bartender, even if you're waiting tables or mm -hmm. whatever you do to make a living, because everybody's got to do it in this town, you shouldn't be uh, afraid or ashamed of the fact that you are an auditioning actor. That's a job. Yeah. Oh man. I love that you said that too, because we've talked about that before where people will downplay their own ability or, or like you're saying, they'll, they'll kind of, I'm, I guess I'm an actor because I'm yeah. trying, you know, like they'll, they'll downplay it so much and not have confidence in what, who they are. And so one thing we're really into, and I'll get back to the story about my wife in a moment, but one thing we're really into is manifesting um, are the things in our lives. So we, sure. we will speak out the things that we want as if they are already come to pass. And it's been working wonders for us in our lives yep. because it, it puts that right mindset into your head. When you say I'm an actor, I have roles, even if you don't have roles, like or, or I'm, I'm going to be booked on, on all these roles. Like you got to speak that every single day and yeah. convince yourself before you could ever convince somebody else. Yeah. And a lot of coaches, I, I don't do this. Um, it's not my, it's not my thing, but mm -hmm. um, when I say I don't teach this, I teach the mechanics of how to get connected to the industry, right. but a lot of people in the creative space do a gratitude journal and they do a, um, I can't think of the phrase, but it's essentially a paragraph or two of what you are and what you want. Mm. You, and maybe, maybe it's a page and you read it every single day when you get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And that yeah, thing but... is, I am a, I am a, uh, auditioning actor looking for a role as blah, blah, blah. Right. And you yep. just keep, and I want to work with producers who have distribution, who are connected to the studio system and have money to pay their actors a living wage and who pay SAG or after scale, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's super important. And you write it down, you, you, you refine it to what you want. There's places to go find it and there's teachers who can teach it. But, um, 
you read it every day and you say it out loud to yourself. And as it evolves, you, it changes. And that's, it, it absolutely has value. I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, working as an actor, that's hard, man. It's hard to hear no every day. I never did that. I was never the guy who heard a no every day. Cause I don't want it. I don't want to hear no. Yeah. It's, it's really tough. And it is. And what I was getting at earlier was you wouldn't, well, you would believe nor people outside of this industry might not believe how many messages she gets every week. And she's not been like a, a really active actor in the last couple of years. I mean, we've done some small roles. She's done some things. Um, but she gets message after message after message. Hey, my friend, my son, I want to get into acting. What should I do? And right. that's like the the first message she gets from any of these people. It's like, no, hi, how are you? Not, you know, any kind of small talk at all. It's just straight to the chase. You know, tell me how to do what you're doing. And right. people don't realize there's years and years and years of grinding that's gone into building these careers. And you can't just ask somebody for a two minute synopsis of where they got to where they are without any kind of prior relationship. Like you got to like really invest in speaking to a person before you give the ask, because otherwise you're just like every other noisy person out there just trying to get theirs and not really trying. You're just looking for the easy way out by asking somebody who's done all the hard work. Yeah. And, and to the, to your point, networking is super important and -hmm. it doesn't have to feel sleazy. It doesn't have to feel soulless. You're making friends with people and make a list of those friends and call them every month or every couple of weeks and just check in just to talk like, Hey, here's what, what are you doing? What's going on? I'm doing this, um, whatever you're doing. And then at the end of the conversation, you go, hey, man, I'm looking for work. If you know anybody who's, who's looking for whatever, set decorator or a line producer or a production accountant, whatever mm-hmm. your thing is, just you don't have to be like, you don't have to be working the angle all the time. Just make friends. Yeah, it reminds me of people uh, I, years ago when I was in my early 20s, I did a pyramid scheme uh, style business. It it was the, uh, it, at that point it was Quickstar, but it was Amway Global I got right, right. involved in and. It, they they teach you to mark to to mark every single person you meet as a potential client, right. you know, and that mindset. It's funny you're using the word mark. Yeah, that mindset is just so sleazy. Like you said, like mm. you you don't have any real relationships with people because once they've declined you as wanting to work with you, it's like okay, on to the next person. I'm done with you. I don't need you in my life yeah. anymore. And yeah. so all these relationships are not real at all. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And it's, it's just about how you operate. That's all. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be that person. You get to choose what you want to be and how you want to operate. And that's a decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit more about the financing aspect of film and TV, because th- this, this is something, you know, I've been on set a couple of times doing some small background roles, just, you know, for fun and whatnot. We mm-hmm. were just on set with a Chris Evans movie, which was super cool. And right. um, it, like you said, there are hundreds of people on those sets doing Mm -hmm. all the things and now even especially since covid it's gone even crazier because you have the people doing the covid regulations and and the ones giving out the masks and the tests and people have to be paid for getting covid tests Uh, my wife was doing some scenes on the walking dead and uh, because it was all the way down in sonoya she was making like as much as a day's worth of work acting just to drive down there and do a covid test which I, I don't understand where all this money in the industry is coming from, honestly, and, and the effect that it's having on production. So can it's, you enlighten it adds us? Money. 
yeah, can you enlighten us a little bit on, you know, the struggle that that's caused and and what that kind of looks like? Well, the simple answer is there's a whole COVID protocol in a team who does that testing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And those tests are $100 to $150 per test. There are people who are making you know, whatever, $1,000 to $2,000 a week administering those tests and wrangling them and sending them where they belong. Mm-hmm. And a $200,000 picture, uh, Canadian, $3 million Canadian dollar, excuse me, I should be clear. $3 million Canadian dollar budget adds easily 200 to 250,000 Canadian dollars in cost to that budget. So we're talking about a number that's close to 10% of an overall budget. And it's just a requirement. So what's happened to some extent, licenses from distributors have come up. So it's being paid for largely by the distributors, by the studios. That's where the excess money is coming from. Eventually that's going to stop. When it becomes endemic, as it seems to have, and people aren't being hospitalized and the fear seem, starts to abate. And my guess is that's 10 months, maybe a year and a half. I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe less. The studios will say, all right, we're done. Enough. Yeah. 10% of budget is enough. So, and by the way, this is um, $3 million features on 100, $200 million features. It's probably close to the same thing. It probably isn't a 10% number, but it's going to be millions of dollars. So you're talking about thousands of people working or, or a thousand people working on those kinds of crews. So mm-hmm. um, I think it'll come to an end uh, sometime pretty soon. Uh, and if you're in the COVID space and that's how you make your living, you want to find another way to make a living. It's probably not going to be around for very much longer. Yeah. So that's where it comes from. And it's just coming out of the bottom line. It's an inflationary cost related to the making of movies in the COVID era. Is that going to stay? No. Is inflation going to stay? It'll get moved from this area into other areas of filmmaking. Yeah. It, it's it's just wild to me. And the fact that you have to sit, like your job is to sit down and look at all those numbers and figure out, okay, we've got this many actors and this yeah. many staff and all these people have to be COVID tested. And oh, that just sounds like a nightmare to me. Is, is it like just yeah. incredibly difficult? No, or is it more actually, like a puzzle to you? It's it's more like a puzzle. It's just mm-hmm. more pieces. And whenever you have a piece that requires bodies, you just apply bodies to it, whether it's three people, five people. It's really just a simple calculation of how many people can we push through a line in an hour and how many people do we have to test? If I can push 10 mm-hmm. people through a line with one person and I got to test 100 people, I'm using round numbers because it's simple, mm-hmm. and I got to test 100 people, I got to have 10 people sitting there taking tests for two hours in the morning every day or at the end of the night, whatever it is, it's just applying a formula to to the average so that you can get on the other end a number that can be put on that particular cost of that line item. And it's like anything else in a budget. It just, it all gets broken down. You sit down, the first thing you do when you get a screenplay and you're you're trying to figure out how to make it, you read it and you, you go one pass, you just read it because it's the last time you're going to read it for joy. The mm-hmm. next time you read it and the hundredth time you read it, it's not fun anymore. It's <laughs> fucking work. Yeah. So you sit down on the second time and you circle all the actors in red and you circle all the props in blue and you underline all the visual effects in black line and so on. You go through the entire draft and you break it down. Each scene has number of people. There's a core amount you have to have, grip, electric camera, set deck, transportation, whatever that is, depending on whether you're on location or not. Each each, uh, department has a line item for each one of those bodies. And you just 
You just have systems where you estimate what the costs are and everybody does it the same way, whether you do it at Sony or Universal or Warner Brothers or wherever, whether it's in television or feature, the difference between television is feature is in TV, you shoot nine pages a day. In average, mm-hmm. in features, you shoot one page a day. Yeah, It's just a different way of working, a different way of thinking, but it's all pretty much the same. It honestly, it really hasn't changed in probably 80 years. The technology has, but the systems for how you make movies hasn't changed. Hmm. That, that's super interesting to me. Like I'm, I'm learning so much right now and I'm just soaking it all in. So thank you for bringing this to us because it, it, it really is opening my eyes on a lot of things. Cause I've always wondered about these behind the scenes things, you know, as, as somebody who's got the chance to work in this, you see a lot of things and you just, you never understand like what's the process to, to do all of that. And so hearing you talk about, you know, going through the script and marking each thing and then doing a calculation, I guess you do need fractions sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a fraction, it's proportions. Yeah. I in fact, when I was in high school, when I used to do fractions, I'd convert it to a, a decimal and then convert it back to a fraction on my answer. I just mm. remember, I just memorized the quarter, the eighth, the half tables of what those equaled in a decimal and then converted it back. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been super educational so far, uh, but you've actually started a new business, uh, F3 Full Force Financial, which is such a cool name, by the way. Thanks. And it's revolutionizing the accounting process. You d- deliver a done-for-you suite of the back-end financial processing and forecasting for content creators. So how is the business going and what's it like juggling the day-to-day operations along with film production and everything else that you're doing? Well, honestly, it's it's not that dissimilar to what I've been doing for the past 13 years, which is mm-hmm. working as a CFO. So what Full Force Financial is, is there is a, it's just totally inside baseball, but I'll go into it because because uh, you asked and it's interesting to me. So must be interesting to everybody, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a... Uh, there is an entire industry of payroll services that you probably received a paycheck from cast and crew, entertainment mm-hmm. partners, green slate media services. Those are the big ones, yep. um, which I think two of them merged recently, but nonetheless, those are the big ones. They process payroll and it's, it's a, it's a Byzantine terrible system. Their architecture is awful. It's all closed architecture. You don't own your, you don't own your data. You license their software and they process payroll for you. And the, mm-hmm. and the one thing we do on that side of the business is we do a cost report. And that is very particular to our industry. So what I did was I built software that sits in between. I built two pieces of software. Number one, I built a piece of software that does the cost reporting element. That's the one thing no one else in the world does. It's particular to entertainment and it's a little peculiar. So we built software to do that. It took us about a year to get it right. Um, and then I built another piece of software that sits in the middle of the accounts payable piece, the accounting part, the payroll using a vanilla accounting and payroll package, whether it's ADP, paychecks, whatever in payroll and using Quick, uh, QuickBooks, Zero, or NetSuite or Oracle or whatever accounting package you're on. So that those three things talk. So what happens is when someone gets hired, it triggers an event that goes to the payroll, that triggers an event that goes to collecting documents for legal and all the rest of it. So what we do is we are essentially selling software to producers that says, hey, if you want to get outside of this expensive, dishonest, um, dishonest because 
they're charging they're, they they say they charge 1.5 to 1.8% of aggregate spend of aggregate gross payroll that's their mm-hmm. fee but the truth is they collect it from other places by by lying and cheating they tell mm-hmm. you their their state unemployment rate is 6.2% but it really is 3 and a half or 4% so they keep the 3% difference right on yeah. the on, up to the cutoff whatever it is it's all kinds of places they do that and they cheat and they take people's money i think it's dishonest and i want it to end so yeah. I developed and built software to be able to work outside of that system and get everything you get there in uh, in an accounting package, a payroll package, and a cost reporting package. That's every that's the things we do in finance. That's how we track movie spending. You know, the, the going specific into the cost report. What we do in entertainment, nobody else in any other business does. Most companies think in terms of quarters, months, maybe never weeks. We think mm-hmm. in terms of days when we're shooting. So. At the end of a day, the next morning by noon, the production accountant will be able to, with some amount of certainty, be able to tell the studio how much money they're over or under budget on labor and spend every single day for the previous day. Nobody else does that. Yeah, but but that's revolutionizing the industry. You know, to some extent, cost reports have been around forever. But Mm -hmm. what I did was I took it out of this you know, 25 or 30 year old shitty software that the accounting, the accounting, I mean, I'm sorry, the payroll services offer and saddle you with, and you do it now outside of that system in a, in an architecture where it's open and you get to work in whatever form you want to work. Yep. So, so it's, it's kind of breaking the, the monopoly that they've had on this system for years by introducing something that takes the power away from the big players that are screwing the little guys. It's not kind of, it is. That's exactly what it's yeah, doing. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm kind of a, a rebellious person when it comes to <laughs> taking down the power from the big people and giving it to the little ones. Like that's, that's my heart right there. <laughs> well, what it was born a couple of years, uh, probably five years by now out of one of the payroll services who I've worked with for 25 years telling me that the world was changing and this is how it's changing. And if you don't adapt, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but if you don't adapt, then we don't want to work with you. And mm-hmm. this is a client of mine who's probably pushing, pushed close to $150 million worth of payroll through that company Man. and over the course of about 10 or 11 years. And they said, this is changing. And if you don't like it, then tough shit. You got to put up with it. And I went, oh, okay, fuck you. I'll figure out how to work around you. And that's yeah. what I did. Nice. And that's that's what it's about. That's where ingenuity comes from. That's where advancements come from. It's people being put in a spot where it's like, if you don't do this, you can't do that. And then people right. like you who don't just cave to their expectations say, no, I think I've got a better way. And you come up with something and now it's, it's changing the industry. It's, I assume it's doing really well. It's going good. It's, it's, I'm getting adoption for producers are like, oh my, well, that's interesting. Wait a minute. We've done it this way for all these years. How do you do this? (laughs) And then I, you know, it's pushing a boulder up a hill every day. I gotta be honest. It's, it's retraining a way of thinking. And these are really Mm -hmm. complex, what we do in entertainment in physical production, everything else is a little bit different, but in physical production, what we do is we spend money at scale and at speed like no other industry, except maybe construction. Yeah. We have a lot of labor, a lot of bitsy little transactions and a lot of materials that we have to bring together and then pay out and then track all those costs and report it back to the studio so the studio knows how much money we're spending on a daily basis. That's essentially what we do. Mm-hmm. So not... There aren't, there aren't really any other industries that work the way we do. There's a few, but not many. So 
um, building systems outside of the monopolies, or they're really, it's really an oligopoly. There's probably a half dozen of them that exist out there, and there's three or four that are dominant. Mm-hmm. So, and they have a they have a lot of control, and they they I don't like the way they treat us, the people who do this for a living. Yeah, no, that's great, and I'm sure the producers that are actually like taking your advice and going with this are saving a ton of money and real happy about it. That's the that's the crazy thing. They can they can literally save. I say it's about six or seven percent of your total aggregate payroll spend. So if you're that's spending a million dollars, you're talking about real money. You're talking about 60, 70 grand. Yeah, and there aren't insane. many movies made for a million dollars. There's movies, most movies are made for a lot more. Yeah. And, th- and then all that money can go back into production, making better movies, which yeah. I, I have noticed that the production level on a lot of stuff has gone down quite a bit since COVID. I feel like- uh, Where do you think just, the 10% came from? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's because they're funneling all that money into all this stupid stuff. And so they're making cuts where it, the cuts really don't need to be made in the actual production of the movie. Yeah. There's some of that. I mean, I would say at this point, you could probably describe some of the decisions as stupid. A year and a half ago, and we didn't really know who was vulnerable and who was getting really sick and dying. Mm-hmm. That was a different, I don't think it was stupid. I think it was just prudent. Yeah. Now I think we're just, we're dealing with fear now. We're not dealing with rational scientific decision-making about there are, people aren't really dying from COVID anymore. It's become a lot less lethal for now. It may change. Who knows? But right. as we as we're talking right now in the you know the spring of 2022, it doesn't seem to be having um, a big effect in terms of uh, making people sick and dying. Yeah, I'm I'm I don't like to get political, but I'm the kind of person that uh, I believe that COVID. You know, it was a problem. We mm-hmm. needed to take it seriously. Of course, yep. we took it seriously. We've done the things. But like this weekend, my wife and I were at MomoCon uh, here in Atlanta. It's a big like Comic-Con style festival. Okay. And they're still making everybody wear masks. Yeah. I've, I've been uh, shot twice. I've been boosted. You know, I've done everything they've asked me to do, yet they're still right. requiring all right. these precautions. And it's just it's funny how like they're going to continue to like just keep that power and you got people walking around with signs saying i'll kick you out if you don't pull that mask up and it's like it's mind-boggling how such little power can go to people's heads in such a big way well i i've said for a while if covid didn't happen during an election year it wouldn't be quite such a hot button issue oh absolutely 100 percent. yeah um, so how has uh, being a creative person helped your business decisions? Uh, do you use your creativity to like with this company? Is is that something that you were able to use your creativity to <laughs> kind of further? And everything? Well, yeah. I mean, creative has such a connotation about, you know, writing books, writing screenplays, mm-hmm. directing, acting, fine arts, dancing, those kinds of things. Right. But scientists are extremely creative. They yeah. come up with an idea to build a test to test COVID in a matter of weeks, right? Never mm-hmm. mind the the vaccines, just the testing protocols that have been created and been through the regulatory process. The the man or woman who comes up with a way of of putting together a physical um, a, a gear, a system of gears, a transmission in a car, whatever it is, mm-hmm. or that's the physical part of it. Even the technological part of it, somebody comes up with an idea. So there is creativity in a lot of different parts and there's an amazing amount of creativity and it, people don't get this, but there's an amazing amount of creativity in the money yeah. and finding the money. And then how do you spend it 
And how do you allocate it so that the creatives can do what they want, right? There's never an infinite amount of money unless you're Steven Spielberg or you're um, James Cameron or J.J. Abrams. And even then it's not infinite. There is a limit to which people will spend so or will spend on your behalf. So um, you have to be creative in how you pull that money together and how you use it. And I think the most creative decisions I've ever seen happen came because of some kind of financial or logistics constraint. Mm. And so have I been creative? Yes, I'm, I'm always forced to be creative. And I happen to be the person who is always thinking like, how can we do this different? How can we do it better? Is there technology mm. we can apply to it? The difference between me and the people who don't do what I do, in other words, create technology to enable people to work around the system and, and make their lives a little easier, is when I get the idea, I write it down. I write yeah. it down in a journal. No matter how stupid it is and no matter how thin or ridiculous it might be or small market it is, I write it down. I don't always act, I don't always act on all of them, but some of them are like, oh, this is actually a really good idea. And that goes for creatives too. You people who write for a living, if they get an idea, you write it down. Don't forget it. Otherwise it just comes. They, they, I don't know where these thoughts come from. Yep. I don't know who puts them there. If a person or something puts them there, it's just your subconscious grinding all the time. Mm -hmm. I have a real, when I'm really in, in a, a place where I'm trying to solve a problem, whether it's how to make a movie or a math problem I'm working on when writing code or how to make code work my way because it doesn't do it. I have a really hard time sleeping. And I mm -hmm. think that's because my subconscious is just grinding on it. And I can't tell you how many times I went to bed not knowing how to do something. And I woke up with a fully fleshed out idea about how to do it. Yeah. It's, so. it's amazing what your subconscious can accomplish when yep. you let it rest a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Same things would happen to me with music. I would, uh, when I was in college, I was a cellist. Um, oh, okay. And I, I majored in cello. Uh, and so... I would be struggling with a particular passage and I'd be practicing <laughs> Sorry, it. I just reminded of a, of a joke about violas, which I'll tell when you're finished, but go ahead and tell. <laughs> oh, there's so it. many good viola jokes, <laughs> but I, I'm very excited here. How do you prevent always... your violin from being stolen? Put in a viola case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so true. That's so great. I love oh, it. Yeah, anyway, orchestral geeks, right? Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, I was an orchestra teacher in middle school. So right. I know. Anyway, I, I, anyway. You, you, you played the cello. Uh, yeah. So I would be practicing these passages for hours and hours. Like you were sure. saying, six, seven hours a day, you know, practicing, just grinding away. And my teacher told me, I was like, I can't get this passage. She's like, uh, first walk away stop. from it. Yeah. yeah. Stop. Think about it differently. Um, she said, try playing it in different rhythms that aren't written. Try playing it backwards. Try, you know, I was just going to say that was advice told to me by a teacher when I was in college. Play yeah, backward. We, we have to trick our minds into stop looking at the actual problem that you're having and yeah. take it from a completely different angle and look at it. And then once you do that, you can see it more clearly. And then the problem can uh, find its own solution. Like you were saying, like in the middle of the night, your subconscious just works it out because you stopped like thinking about it constantly yeah. in that moment and stressing about it because you get so wrapped up in, in that thing that you forget everything else and you just come become consumed with it and you can't think clearly enough to actually fix the problem. And I think musicians learn this at a young age because we all start mm -hmm. playing usually around the fourth grade, sometimes a little earlier, right? Right. So what you, what you learn when you're practicing or you're learning a new technique or a new rudiment or, or a new scale or whatever you're learning, you 
you, you practice, you practice, you don't get it, you practice, you don't get it. And then one day it just happens and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, that just happened. I didn't even try. Yeah. And that's a thing you learn that musicians, um, that a lot of people who don't play never get. They don't get that you just got to let it lie sometimes. And it'll mm-hmm. just, it just comes one day. And you see the progress. You see failure, 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 success. Failure, yep. failure, failure, success. But you take five steps forward, three steps back, five forward, two back. But at the end of the day, you've taken 10 steps, but you're still forward more than you're backward. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I love it. And that's, that's 100%. You're just like preaching on what this podcast is all about. People get, people get so wrapped up in the failure that they're like, I'm never going to reach the success. And they forget that there are little successes along the way to every major success. You know, you don't just go from, Hey, I'd like to be in the movie industry to being, uh, a producer of a movie. Like you don't just go from one to the other. There's a million little things you have to do between those two. And there's a lot of failure along the way, yeah. but you have to recognize when there are successes and celebrate those successes and, and enjoy the time where you're actually making progress or else you'll just get bogged down by all the things that are 10 steps back. And instead of just keep saying, but I am moving forward little by little. And so that's well, and also Something that caught my attention about your podcast and the name of it and the description of it, which is success, finding your success. Mm-hmm. What is success? I was 35 years old. I was running Oprah Winfrey's film unit, making three or four movies a year, both features and television. Um, I was flying back from Chicago in Oprah Winfrey's G5 um, sit with her sitting across from me. And 15 days earlier, I was complaining about the fact that I had to go to Chicago in the middle of winter. This was in December. And my oh. friend is like, are you fucking kidding me? People <laughs> give their eyed teeth to go to lunch with Oprah Winfrey. And I was right? like, oh, I don't want to go to Chicago. Fuck that. Anyway, I'm, and I'm flying back. And I remember, and I'm not telling the story as bragging. I'm telling it as an illustration of what success is. Right. I was 35 years old and I was, I'd been doing the job for five years. I was a, we were about to go into what became the last movie I made for that company, which was a movie called Amy and Isabel. Um, and I was flying home and I was thinking to myself, I don't want the next job. I don't want to be the studio executive that I was being groomed to be, to make the transition from, uh, from an independent producer into a studio job. Mm-hmm. And I saw that life and I saw those people. And for me, there was a disconnect between their perception Uh, that the outside world had of them, there was a publicity that was created, a myth that was created around this person. But then when I worked with those people, the myth didn't match the reality. They were still interesting people. They were good at their job. I couldn't couldn't figure out how to make a life out of living in a duplicitous world where the world thought I was this, but I was really that, right? So I walked away. I was 35 years old. I made one more movie with them. And I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to go do something else. And so for about five years, I floundered because I didn't have that. I got that goal I wanted when I was 30. I did Mm -hmm. it for five or six years. And then I was kind of just adrift in the wind for five, six years. And then I landed on this CFO thing Mm -hmm. and I decided, and I had, I got married. I was line producing through that period of time. I got married and I was, we were just about to have a kid and I was like, do I really want to be the guy who's on the road all the time out in the world? I was, I had lived all over the world at that point. I'd spent 17 years on the road living in Europe and in Japan and all over the United States and Canada. And I was 
I was, I was done. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want that life. So it's a long way to say what I defined as success as a 25 year old, and then as a 35 year old, and then as a 45 year old, they changed every single time. Yep. And the success that I was striving for was success. I created for myself that I decided what success was not the people around me, yeah. not the Bentley, not the big house, not the expensive flying around in Oprah's G5. None of that shit. I wanted none of it. I wanted a simple life. And I'm the one who decided what and defined what success was. And that's what, that's what I chased. And I always chased my version of success, not the outside. And that's why, you know, I live like a college student in a 900 square foot, two bedroom apartment with my 11 year old, 50% yeah. of the time. That's fine. I, that's what I want. I want it simple. Not everybody does. I'm not saying you got to have that. But define what success is for yourself and chase that, not what everybody else thinks success is. That's so great. And speaking of which, this is my favorite part of the podcast. Uh, we have to celebrate what your most recent success is, big or small. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> we always like to you know, celebrate that, to stop and take a minute and to recognize the things that are going right. So what's a success that you would like to celebrate right here on the podcast? Well, one of the things you brought up was full force financial and the software we developed there. It took me about, well, it took all together eight years, but it took us about two and a half years to really get it into a form at the beginning of the year. And that has been the biggest success we've gone, I've gone through in the past couple of years. And it's been really fun and really exciting and mentally challenging learning how tech works and all of that. It's mm -hmm. been a lot of fun and applying it to the movie industry in particular film production has been so rewarding. And the people we work with are amazing. That's so awesome. And we want to celebrate with you as well, me and my wife, who's you know not here, obviously, and all of our fans, we, we celebrate the fact that you started that and it's going to change the world of, of financing when it comes to movies and film production. It's just going to be so great for you and we can't wait to see what that does there. Yeah. Uh, why don't you real quick tell our listeners where they could find you, connect with you, um, see what you're doing, keep up with what you're up to. Yeah. The best place to get me is on my website. It's timtratora.com and last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. If you're interested in the book, which is about how to get connected in Hollywood, the title is, as you said before, how to make it in Hollywood. Um, the best place to get that is career.timtratora.com. And mm -hmm. on my website, there's all kinds of links to the social and there's a there's a form you can fill out and ask any question you want on the bottom of the form and feel free to fill, fill it out. It gets to me or my, my, uh, my assistant. Yeah, so make sure that you don't just come straight up and ask him to. <laughs> Will you read my screenplay? To, yeah, to read your play or to get you a role or you know whatever it is that your ask might be. Try to develop right. a little relationship there before you do that. And understand what whoever you're talking to does in the business. Yeah. I can't help you with creative. I'm not good at it. I don't do that. I haven't done it since I left Harpo Films, which was in 2001 or two. It's been a long mm -hmm. time. I'm a finance guy. I can help you with finance, not financing your own movies, but nonetheless, <laughs> you understand the person you're writing to. That's my point. Absolutely. Well, Tim, if you had one last piece of advice and you've given so much advice uh, for anyone that's an aspiring uh, finance person in the film area, what would you tell them? Uh, two things. One, we are headed for a rough patch in this mm. business. We have been up and to the right since 2009. That's a long time to be up and to the right. Yeah. So uh, that's going to change. Budgets are going to come down. Compression is going to happen. It's coming. 
And there's going to be a lot of noise about the crash and the negative and terrible and the world is coming to an end and we're going to be a world war and nuclear, la, 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 right? Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Those people in the media, their job is to sell you gloom and doom. Remember, it's not always gloom and doom. Um, read what you can about the contemporaneous happenings of people that happened during the depression. You will be amazed at how many people survived and thrived during that period, even though we hear about terrible things. But this is a marathon, not a sprint. We're about to enter a sprint for the next 18 to 24 months. It's probably going to suck. But remember, on the other side of it is something big and it is going to come. You just have to get through this piece now. So just hang on tight and ride the wave. <laughs> and Yeah. And it's all negative propaganda. Don't buy into it. It's information. You got to have it. Don't ignore it. Yep. But remember, it's just propaganda to sell you newspapers. Yep. or advertising. That's what it's doing. Well, Tim, this has been absolutely amazing. Like I've said already, I've learned so much and really, truly appreciate your time and speaking to our audience and just giving your wisdom that you've uh, that you've learned over the last, gosh, I guess, 20 something years or more. 37. <laughs> 37. Wow. Yeah. I was trying to be generous for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually had someone tell me the other day that I didn't look like I was 56, but I am indeed. Well, you're pulling it off, pulling it off. (laughs) No surgery yet. Good job. Good job. Well, I I do appreciate your time and uh, we'll definitely have to catch up with you in the future and see how all this is going for you and have you back eventually. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. All right. Later. Bye. That was so cool to just be able to hear somebody in the industry talk about all the things that they've learned and they've seen and just share wisdom and knowledge that is actually beneficial to people that are in the industry wanting to pursue it. There's so many practical things that he just said. I hope people that were hearing it were taking notes and listening closely. If not, I recommend you go back and listen again, take some notes and and try some of the methods that he's talked about today, because there's a lot of things that he mentioned, like following up with people using snail mail, little tricks that you can do that will actually get people's attention and make you stand out above the crowd. This has been so great. I hate that Melissa wasn't here today and she hates that she couldn't be on this interview as well, but it's just, it's such a crazy time in life right now. We've got a lot going on, a lot of really exciting things, and we can't wait to share all that with you extremely soon. Make sure you go over to creative global, uh, our, our Patreon at patreon.com slash creative global and get registered there. We're putting out bonus content all the time for you guys having a, you know, different interviews that we're doing that are a little bit more private or a little bit like different format. So check that out. Uh, make sure that you're liking our social medias on Facebook and Instagram at Reimagine Success Pod everywhere. So Reimagine Success Pod on Facebook, Instagram. Hit us up there. Make sure you share this with all your friends. Word of mouth truly is the best way to spread information about things all the podcasts i listen to i found out from word of mouth from other people so do tell your friends and family to check out this podcast if you've enjoyed it thank you again for listening and with that this has been a creative global podcasting production did you get motivated do you feel inspired don't worry about keeping up with the joneses anymore and don't forget to celebrate your successes every single day thank you for taking this journey with us Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Reimagine Success Pod. Email us at reimaginesuccesspod at gmail.com and let us know what your successes are. 
head over to patreon.com slash creativeglobal for bonus and behind-the-scenes content. New episodes every Thursday at reimaginesuccesspod.com or your favorite podcast streaming platform. So let's change our mindsets and reimagine success.